Having some second thoughts now? Welcome to the Texas Take, the number one political podcast in the great state. I'm Scott Braddock, and he is Jeremy Wallace. You can find me at quorumreport.com, and Jeremy's work appears at houstonchronicle.com. Jeremy, you're checking in from San Antonio today. How's the Alamo City? Oh, it's beautiful. And like, you know, I felt like we were getting all that attention to Mule Shoe and, mm-hmm. you know, Dumas and Spearman. So now I decided, you know, I got to get to San Antonio. Like That you would go the visit the, the tiny burg of... Bear County. There right. you go. Same thing. Um, we'll get into why you're there uh, in just a little bit. Very interesting uh, story out of South Texas. But we have to start with this uh, all-out air assault from Democrats. Uh, they are taking the Republicans to task on the Internet and on television over one issue. They are focused like a laser on abortion. And Jeremy, am I wrong to say that four years ago or eight years ago, it would be very difficult to get a Texas Democrat in a statewide race to even say the word abortion. Is that right? <laughs> Absolutely correct. <laughs> yes. Now, after the Dobbs decision, I think this is fascinating. After the Dobbs decision, not only did it put abortion just you know front and center, right on the front burner, because the decision returns the decision on abortion to the states, it also puts state government front and center. Right. In a way that it wouldn't normally be. People are saying, well, if we have these, you know, very restrictive laws on abortion, who's to blame for that? Well, it's not the feds. It's not the Supreme Court or any of that. that that's not the way people are viewing it now. They would think whether they agree with it or not, they would say that's, you know, Governor Abbott and the Republican legislature. Right. So you see these ads on television and on the internet coming from the Democrats solely focused on this. At the stroke of midnight, the most restrictive abortion law in the country went into effect in Texas. There's a war on our personal freedom in Texas. Dan Patrick and Ken Paxton are leading the attack on our rights. We have lost total control over our own bodies. Even victims of rape or incest, no matter how young, We need change in Texas. We're here to fight back. That was Mike Collier, who's running for lieutenant governor as a Democrat, and Rochelle Garza, the Democratic nominee for attorney general. They teamed up for that ad. In the meantime, the Democrat running for governor, Beto O'Rourke, is running two television ads of his own. And Jeremy, both Beto and Governor Abbott on television with advertising before Labor Day. That's how long and arduous this campaign is going to be. Uh, Beto also taking aim at the sweeping Texas abortion ban that went into effect on Thursday. From this day forward, August 25th, women all across Texas are no longer free to make decisions about our own body. No longer free to choose if a pregnancy is right for us or our families. Not even in cases of rape or incest. And women will die because of it. Women will die. I know some people will hear that and think that sounds like hyperbole, like that's too much. So I want to give you some perspective on this. You may have seen, Jeremy, that there was a Republican lawmaker in South Carolina who voted for a similar law to what we have in Texas. One of these fetal heartbeat bills that says if and the, the bumper sticker on this from Republicans had been, and we saw this play out in the legislature last year, they would say, quote, if the heartbeat is protected, the, or excuse me, if the heartbeat is detected, the life is protected, close quote. It seems pretty simple, but these things are never as simple as they seem when you actually know what you're talking about. So after the law took effect in South Carolina, this uh, GOP member of their state house uh, in uh, South Carolina said that he can't sleep at night now because after the law went into effect, he heard from some of his constituents and some doctors in his district who told him, about what happened with a young woman who lives there, um, that her life was in danger because doctors could not help her when she went to the hospital. The second week that this, that the fetal heartbeat bill became law, a doctor called me out of Anderson. I live in Easley. A 19-year-old girl appeared at the ER. She was 15 weeks pregnant. Her water broke. And the the fetus was unviable. The standard of care was to advise her uh, that they could extract or she could go home. The attorneys told the doctors that because of the fetal heartbeat bill, because that 15-week-old had a heartbeat, the doctors could not extract. 
So their only choices were to admit the 19-year-old until that fetal heartbeat stopped. I asked, how long does it take to stop? She said, seconds, minutes, hours, maybe days. Or discharge. They discharged that 19-year-old. The doctor told me at that point, there's a 50% chance, well, first, she's going to pass this fetus in the toilet. She's going to have to deal with that on her own. There's a 50% chance, greater than 50% chance, that she's going to lose her uterus. There's a 10% chance that she will develop sepsis and herself die. That weighs on me. I voted for that bill. These are affecting people, and we're having a meeting about this. It took that whole week I did not sleep. Again, that's a Republican who voted for it. Now, I can tell you that here in Texas, privately, there are Republicans who would say the same thing, who voted for some of these pieces of legislation. And one of the other things, Jeremy, that was said privately last year as some of this was being debated, I heard it at the Capitol over and over again, there were GOP legislators in the Texas House and Texas Senate who would say, not on the record, it wasn't in the newspaper and we didn't print it at Quorum Report, but privately they were saying, we don't think the Supreme Court's going to let us do this. So we're going to vote on this and we can say we voted for it, but there's a backstop, right? That The courts won't let us do this. They felt like there was no real consequence in the real world for doing it, that it was just politics. But there is a concept in law that says that the legislature never does anything that's meaningless, which some people might laugh at because it seems like they do lots of meaningless things. But when they change statute, the courts and the, uh, you know, the systems that they're regulating, the hospital systems or, you know, any of our regulatory schemes, anything like that, everybody who runs those things, have to, they have to look at what the legislature did and try to be in compliance with it. And guess what? After this Thursday, all across Texas, there are going to be women who are sent home, just like that woman in South Carolina, who could not get the help she needed. And I would add that she needed. And I would add this. During the uh, debate on the Affordable Care Act, back after 2008, 2009, how many times did Republicans say the following? Government should not be between a patient and a doctor. That We heard that over and over and over again. Um, and now it seems Republicans have the complete opposite stance on this issue. Yeah, it's amazing because like in even what we heard in that South Carolina clip, like I heard, you know, Elements of that, you know, when I was traveling with Beto O'Rourke through some of the even the panhandle towns, these conservative red areas where, you know, there were at least a couple of stops. I, I remember one in Dumas, Texas uh, and one in Lubbock where, you know, women or you know, uh, w would would give, you know, explain about when they had a non viable you know pregnancy and they had to like make that 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 horrendous, difficult you know, decision to, to, you know, have, you know, get that taken care of. But even, you know, before this stuff came in, you know, the medical community was so careful. It's because what you just said, it's like, it's not doctors making that decision at this point. It's lawyers at the hospital saying, no, it's like our necks are on the line. We can't risk this. The, the Republican pro-life movement is so aggressive. Remember, we did pass a law that allowed the families, essentially, of rapists to be able to sue, like a mother or a father who took their daughter to get an abortion. That's where yep. we are. What do you think the medical community, the medical world, who always has led the charge on tort reform, right? You know, they're mm -hmm. the ones who are kind of worried about. Wait a minute, it's like, are we going to get sued to daylights? for extracting this mm -hmm. fetus that once had a heartbeat but no longer there's nothing in the law that says once a heartbeat is detected and then is gone then all bets are off there's nothing that says yeah. that so the lawyers are saying no it's like that's not our thing it's like we've just put this in a really you know very litigious world when there are mm -hmm. these real life examples and consequences and you know one of the things i kept thinking about was like think of all those women who get stuck in that trafficking world you know like who like what's going to happen when they get pregnant in texas you mm -hmm. know i don't know it, it scares the heck out of me everything i can think of is not good you know it's like it's gonna be bad and it's just like who's going to help them you know at this point and i'm like 
I'm just not sure where the cavalry is at this point. Yeah, it's it's a good point. And so you would have to ask the question, how does the governor here address these concerns that these restrictions go too far, including having no exceptions for rape and incest? Um, and a woman who's trafficked gets pregnant. We know what happened, right? So uh, we don't have to guess about that. So here's what the governor said when he was asked. Last year, this was almost a year ago in Tyler, he was asked by a reporter from WFAA, what do you say, Governor, uh, about the fact that this has no exception in these horrible circumstances? Why force a rape or incest victim to carry a pregnancy to term? Uh, it doesn't require that at all because, uh, obviously, uh, it provides uh, at least six weeks uh, for a person uh, to be able to uh, get an abortion. And so, for one, it doesn't provide that. That said, however, let's make something very clear. Rape is a crime. And Texas will work tirelessly to make sure that we eliminate all rapists from the streets of Texas by aggressively going out and uh, arresting them and prosecuting them and getting them off the streets. So goal number one in the state of Texas is to eliminate rape so that no woman, no person will be a victim of rape. I checked as of yesterday. I'm sorry I haven't done it today, but I checked yesterday, Jeremy. Uh, on uh, August 25th, 2022, Rape has yet to be eliminated in the state of Texas. And then beyond that, as of yesterday as well, we still have a huge backlog of untested rape kits in this state, which the legislature has passed some uh, legislation to try to address that. I will, I'll try to update the numbers for today, but that is where we are, right? Um, yeah. And I'm trying to figure out, <laughs> I'm trying to figure out whether those comments from Abbott are better or worse or maybe better said, um, uh, whether those comments are stupider or just as stupid as the words of a U.S. Senate candidate back in 2012. You remember this guy, Todd Aiken? Yes. And what he said about he was a congressman running for the U.S. Senate. Where was that? Was that in um, Missouri. Missouri? Yep. In Missouri. And that was uh, the race that uh, – and I was told, by the way, you should never say Missouri unless you're actually from there. So Missouri. Um, and that's where uh, Claire McCaskill, the Democrat, won that that race that year. And her victory in a place that's a little more conservative, the Democratic victory was uh, in a lot of ways attributed to these comments from that Republican candidate back in 2012. If it's a legitimate rape, uh, the female body has ways to try to shut that whole thing down. But let's Those words were almost universally condemned, even giving Mitt Romney and Barack Obama something to agree on. The views expressed were offensive. Rape is rape. His comments about, about rape uh, were deeply offensive. The Democratic and Republican nominees for president, uh, you know, were both saying, whoa, whoa, everybody slow down. This is, uh, this is not how any of this works. Uh, after that cycle, Jeremy, I sort of thought that the only thing that a man running for office uh, when he's asked about rape, the only thing he should say is that it's awful and really not expound beyond that, right? And, and so, so here you have Abbott saying he's just going to eliminate it. It's, it's a very unserious comment about a very, very serious topic. Yeah, it's, I, I'm sure if he had a time machine to go back, <laughs> he would go back then and, you know, rephrase that completely. It's like, you know, you know, we're going to get tougher on rapists or something, but, <laughs> right. but come on, you know, it's like, it's just, it's just, there's no person on earth who heard that and thought, oh, okay, good. <laughs> well, that thought it was serious. And in yeah. fact, I picked up on this is um, in, in watching the video this week as I was preparing for this magnificent podcast. I was watching the video of Abbott saying that and you heard where there was applause when he said that he was going to work to eliminate rape. You know, there was one person sitting right there with him who did not applaud. And it's a person who I have said over and over again has the best political antenna in Texas. It was Lieutenant Governor Patrick sitting right next to him, almost had no reaction. Everyone else is applauding, and Patrick had almost no reaction. And my take on that real quick would just be, he must have known. Patrick at that moment knows that that is the dumbest thing that he could be saying about that. So he's just sort of sat there, stone-faced, not reacting. I think it's interesting, Jeremy, that while Democrats are on the attack, you have to ask the question, what are Republicans doing? Well, you this morning reported out that Greg Abbott has his second television campaign, uh, excuse me, second uh, television advertisement of the campaign uh, up on TV now. And it, it, am I wrong that these are sort of um, 
it is soft image ads. This is the, you know, the governor trying to portray himself as somebody who can connect with the average Texan. I mean, the first ad was his wife, who's an excellent messenger, by the way. She was talking about his personal story about when he was injured in Houston years ago, uh, when the tree fell on him uh, in River Oaks. And he was, uh, you know, after that, uh, you know, confined to a wheelchair. I thought that was an effective sort of introductory ad. And this new ad is called Securing the Future of Texas. Take a listen. My dad died when I was in high school. I had to wait tables at a place just like this to be able to pay for school. It took hard work, but Texas gave me the opportunity to succeed. That's why, as governor, I focus on creating jobs for all Texans by investing in education, expanding our energy industry, and by keeping taxes low for our families. We are securing the future of Texas so that everyone has the same opportunities that Texas gave me. I have thoughts on why the governor's going in the softer direction in his TV advertising, but t- tell me what you think first, Jeremy. All right. And, and this is, you know, I know we pounded the, uh, the you know, this point last week, but, you yep. know, this is where my Florida training kind of really comes in handy. So when a state changes this much. Did you cover this, politics? In, wait, did you cover politics in Florida? Yeah, you may have heard this. Is that true? All right. <laughs> I might have so, so, so missed that. What happened there, you know, is what is happening here for Abbott. Like the state has changed so dramatically since his, you know, look, you know, Let's just forget about 2018 for a second. Obviously, it was not as competitive a race. You know, he didn't have to do nearly as much. Sure. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, so what he's he's in this position that since 2014, there's over three million additional Texans who are registered voters. Right, three million mm-hmm. people who have never voted for a Greg Abbott for any office ever in their lives. He has to basically introduce himself for the first time to. Millions of Texans who have never really kind of thought about who am I going to vote for for governor this cycle, you know. Yeah. So he's he's going to have you know I, I I could see it right away. It's like he has to do a lot of bio stuff before he mm-hmm. can even get to the point where he tears down Beto. He has to define himself before Beto starts defining. He's almost the you know, the, the lesser known candidate of the two in some weird ways. I know that right. might shock people for a guy who's been in office for 26 years, but mm-hmm. like he has work to do to kind of try to explain people, okay, who are you right now? Because in that you see Beto's doing this ad of like how Greg Abbott is taking women's rights away and trying to, you know, kill women essentially. It's like mm-hmm. Abbott's got to find some way to say, no, 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 I'm this nice guy who overcame a lot. I'm hardworking. You know, aren't I nice? You know, it's like he's got to, yeah, he's got to get who he is out before Beto uses all his money to define Mm -hmm. who he is. Something he didn't have to worry about with Lupe Valdez. He had to worry about it a little bit with Wendy Davis. So people did hear a little bit of the back and forth back then. But, Mm -hmm. you know, so this is like, he's like a brand new candidate. So this all makes sense to me. Yeah, with Beto, it's interesting. I've seen some, you know, some of the public polling, some of the private polling that I'm privy to shows that in a lot of cases, when they ask voters about these two guys, Beto is, as you said, better known. I mean, his his name ID approaches 100%. As I have joked here before, it's not that different from Oprah. Yeah. When you say the first name, that's all you have to say. Everyone knows who you're talking about if you say Beto. And in fact, that's not just in Texas. People know the guy everywhere. That's a double-edged sword, though, because if people already know who you are, they probably have an opinion about you already. And so moving the opinion about yourself through your advertising would be difficult for Abbott. If he's lesser known, one advantage he may have, Jeremy, is that if people don't know him as much, he has unlimited resources to shape what people think about him. Yeah. Right. He's got, you know, more than he'll have more than $50 million he's going to spend in this thing. Um, and so if people are learning about him for the first time, he can do this, uh, you know, this whole sales job of, hey, I'm a nice guy. I'm just like you. I worked in a restaurant like this when I was a teenager trying to put myself through school and all that sort of stuff. Um, but the one, one uh, dynamic to add to that would be that for a lot of those new voters you're talking about, if they pay attention to the news at all, a lot of the info they know about Abbott already is bad, right? They think that he mishandled the electricity grid. A lot of women who have traditionally voted for Republicans are saying, wait a minute, this is the guy who I, I voted for this guy previously and he did what? He signed this thing that has no exceptions for rape and incest and uh, basically says that a woman does not have autonomy over her body. And now you have legislators actively talking about the idea of banning women from traveling to other states 
where abortions are legal. Uh, the, uh, one legislator from Houston talking about that for the next legislative session already. One legislator from the Houston area, Briscoe Kane, said on the day of the Dobbs decision that they would look for ways to, quote, punish, close quote, women who have abortions. Right? That's the way people in Abbott's party are talking about this. So it's a, it's, it's a rough environment uh, for the Republicans right now. Now, this is Texas. And so I would say, you're a baseball guy, Jeremy. Follow me on this. If if I'm handicapping it, like what, what does the race look like? I would say that Republicans are probably up three runs, seven to four in the top of the fourth right now because, because of structural advantages, um, you know, which Republicans enjoy in the state just in spades. Um, but that means there's a lot of baseball left to play, and this is a very dynamic situation. And so that's why you do have Abbott's campaign also seeking to, as you said, define Beto. Now, they're not doing that on television yet, which is where you spend the millions of dollars. But did you see this uh, this digital ad where they are blasting Beto for dropping the F-bomb all the time? Oh, yeah. It's almost like Texas politics needs a parental advisory at this <laughs> point. Um, this is <laughs> this is Abbott's ad called Bad Mouth Beto. What the f***? I Middle school is a and I'm staying at home. Texas women. Take it and say nice. Who gives if it is, why aren't you doing some fight or You know, the example of the F-bomb that was dropped by Beto that's not in that ad is when he said the guy who was laughing about dead kids was a motherfucker. Yeah. That's not in there, right? I think there's a reason that's not in there. Because I think that resonated, but they didn't want to put this out there that Beto is this—I don't know—they they, they want to portray him as like this bratty kid who doesn't know how to control himself. Now, listen, I have heard from some veteran Democratic strategists who are concerned about that, uh, Jeremy. They would say that, yeah, that sometimes when Beto hauls off and talks this way, he doesn't quote look gubernatorial, close quote. He doesn't look like someone who could lead a state. But I come back to the same idea about you know former President Trump, yeah. which was a lot of people said he doesn't look presidential. He's running around, you know, making fun of, uh, you know, people who have disabilities. He's uh, talking about locking up his political opponents. He's, he drops plenty of expletives all the time, which we have, you know, demonstrated on this show previously. In a post-Trump world, I think maybe a lot of that stuff doesn't matter as much. And I would also say this about the governor's race. It's very interesting to me that just like to the 2016 presidential race with Beto and Abbott, you probably have favorability that's underwater with general election voters. I think they're pretty solid with their bases for the most part. Maybe Abbott not as much as Beto because we've seen where there are those Republicans who still say that you know Abbott's not conservative enough. I saw where one of the spokesmen for Empower Texans, one of the right-wing enforcement groups, had said, why vote for a Republican this fall if it's just going to basically be Democrat light? And I think some of that's directed at Governor Abbott. So just like 16, if Beto and Abbott are both thought of in negative ways, just like uh, Clinton and Trump were in 16, it may be that voters are willing to give somebody who has never been in that, you know, at that level of an office, they might give them a shot. They might give them a chance. That was Trump in 2016. That would be Beto this time around, right? He's been a member of Congress, but he hasn't been in the upper echelons of state government. Yeah, absolutely, and 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 you know, it's it's great, you know, real about this whole like he curses too much thing. You know, this at, is at a time when uh, this whole you know let's go Brandon thing has come off the lips of pretty much every Republican <laughs> that you can think of, including Governor Greg Abbott. You know, these folks are saying this, which is code, of course, for f you, Joe Biden. As we all know that at this point. So it's like, yeah, he's not dropping the F bomb, but he's kind of dropping the F bomb when he does that, right? right? You know, it says, and everybody well, who it, says it, when you heard, when you heard, you know, Ted Cruz, you know, saying that in, in a crowd with like kids in it, you're sitting there go, okay, now you have all these parents go, you know, well, that means, <laughs> this is what yes. it means, you know, it means Joe Biden's bad, but without the curse word. Oh, come on. Right. Anyhow, it so, means F Joe Biden. Yeah. It's like in this environment, it's just hard for me to think that somebody's clutching their pearls right now that mm -hmm. you know beto you know uh, curses you know it's like 
really? Is that going to really move the needle? <laughs> All of these same people who tout their Trump endorsement are worried about harsh language in politics. Yeah. Uh, I, I, speaking of that, I saw a, a, an email from Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, who is on his bus tour of the state right now. He's promoting that uh, through some uh, emails to supporters and on his social media. Uh, one uh, Capitol veteran just forwarded me the email from Patrick's campaign about his bus tour. And uh, <laughs> This longtime observer of politics uh, looking at the picture said, look, tens of people. Uh, Patrick is uh, – <laughs> he's stopping at Bucky's. He's stopping at other places around the state, and he's uh, you know, promoting the idea that he's out amongst the people, Jeremy. Have you ever seen a photo of a Bucky's that wasn't filled with people? Yeah, like right, right. – did... You know what? I People are going to – want me to turn in my Texan card over this, although most of you, I was here before you. Um, I usually don't stop at Bucky's because there's too many people. I don't want to be there all day. You know, I mean, I, I enjoy the place, but there are some smaller Bucky's that I'll stop at, uh, for example, in Giddings yep. uh, on 290. There's, there's a small Bucky's. It's got all the same stuff, but it's, it's tiny. It's great. It's not like one of these that's on I-10 or on 35 or whatever. Uh, but in this email... From Patrick, he says, quote, I started day two of my 131, 131 cities, of my 131 city bus tour across Texas in Pleasanton with Senator Pete Flores. And then there's some pictures of him. Patrick is talking with, I don't know, maybe a couple dozen people. There are pictures of Patrick with one guy, then a picture of Patrick with hmm, five, five guys, including a state senator, and then one picture of him by himself. So it's not exactly a Beto rally. No. What is he it, doing? What, well, what is he doing, Jeremy? Well, what's even stranger about the whole thing, so he sent out a press release after he had the event in San Antonio to say he was there, which is a weird, like, like uh, you know, I don't want to get too in the weeds here, but that's not how press releases work. <laughs> press releases say, we're going to have an event, and can you come cover it? It's, it's yeah. not like... We had an event yesterday. You can't cover it. There's nothing you can do about it. And we're now moving on to the next city. It's, like, it's a really weird thing. I would have covered it. I was in San Antonio. I could have mm -hmm. easily popped in, written a story about what he's saying, why he should be yeah. reelected and move on. But he right. didn't even get that because like he told everybody – after he was gone. So unless we have like one of those like DeLoreans with a flux capacitor to go back in time, like we're, we're just not going to be able to do anything for you, sir. <laughs> that is an excellent reference. By the way, uh, at least twice a year I do on Saturdays a, a, a marathon of all three movies. <laughs> I love, love, love Back to the Future. When you're saying he's sort of ducking the press, which is what that sounds like, I saw where – uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis had put out a video earlier in the week where he was saying that he was sort of he was portraying himself as the flight instructor at the Top Gun School for trying to uh, deal with the press and argue with the press and not accept the narrative of the press and all that. Uh, but then two days later, I saw a video of him running the other way, trying to get out of there when a reporter asked him what he thought about all these abortion restrictions that are now so uh, so controversial. And I thought, wow, I don't think Maverick. Or Goose would have just run the other way. How's that for a, for another movie <laughs> we're, reference? We're just gonna we're gonna hit all the '80s things. So you know, I'm getting an Axel Foley reference in here soon too. So we just, <laughs> we'll just keep the, the say, folks all going here. Maya, can you attest that when he said flux capacitor, I lit up like a flux capacitor. <laughs> I was, you know, God, I love that movie. Um, I saw the one other thing about that: um, the FBI raid on Trump's house in Florida. There was a tweet that I. Sometimes you see stuff online and it's mildly amusing, kind of funny, whatever. Someone had tweeted out that the FBI released the specific information of what they found at Trump's house. And it was a picture of the Gray's sports and a breath of the Gray's sports <laughs> catalog. You know, this yep. almanac. This is like, this is too good. He's Biff Tannen. Uh, why is it you're in San Antonio? Uh, Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas was in South Texas this week. To talk about border security and immigration, what was the conversation like? Yeah, uh, he, he was here for all kinds of stuff. He was uh, meeting with uh, various groups in the city who are who are dealing with you know the the, the influx of migration and you know trying to help people kind of get where they're going. And so he was kind of really you know trying to put a uh, the Biden administration 
you know, front forward on that whole topic. But one of the things like, you know, I took advantage of the situation, mm-hmm. uh, given that like he was in town and I, I've been kind of looking at the, the immigration numbers and there is a massive shift in what is happening in the migration patterns on the Texas border right now. It's like we, if, if you follow Texas politics for the last 20 years, you know, the Rio Grande Valley is like overwhelmingly the number one place where people are going to come across. Uh, and that's, you know, typically Mexicans, it's uh, uh, people from the, the triangle countries, you know, that's the predominant, you know, background of the people coming through there. But that has all changed in this summer, particularly. And now, like every, you know, the, the Del Rio sector, which typically was one of the least traffic places you know, for, you know, migrants coming through is now suddenly the most, tra- you, know, you know, the place where most people are coming through. 50,000 people came through that, you know, port uh, or through that area uh, just in July. That's typically what they got over a two or three year period of time. I looked at the numbers from 2016 to 2018, that whole stretch, they had about 50,000. So they're getting more people in one month than they can handle over a three year period of time. So I asked my orcas about this, and he said, "Yes, absolutely. This is a major shift that they're trying to have to scramble to to get you know or move resources up to Del Rio, uh, mm-hmm. and they're trying to do more as an administration to disrupt the uh, the the, the, the uh, smugglers who are trying to get people through. Uh, but yeah. what's different about this is the folks that are coming through Del Rio are a lot of Venezuelans and Cubans." And less mm-hmm. Mexicans and less, you know, triangle country places. You know, you're yeah. seeing a lot more people from other South American nations now coming through that port, which is putting an entirely different strain on the immigration system. They're all of a sudden like, okay, wait, this is a totally different thing. And think about, you know, when you hear Venezuela and Cuba, you know, like say they're going to have a different kind of asylum claim, you know, when mm-hmm. they come you know, to this country. And they're going to be a position where does does the Biden administration or any presidential administration want to send people back to socialist or communist countries that are run mm. by dictators as like what a crazy you know anti you know american philosophy right you know instead of give us you're tired and you're, you're sick and you're right. poor it's like no no we're going to send venezuelans back into the economic you know collapse of where they're coming from, no way. It's so, like you right. see, it's it's just really changed everything on the border, and it's happened you know quickly. It's like literally in those last you know couple of months that we've just seen a complete sea change down there. Yeah, so so different uh, folks of different nationalities coming in, but did he have an answer about why they're going there instead of to the other? portions of the border. And I would ask, I would wonder, does it have to anything to do with how many more state resources have been put in certain places and not in that more rural sector? Well, it, it, it speak. he said it speaks to the sophistication of the smuggling network. You know, they, you know, as you know, the, obviously the, the beefing up along the Rio Grande Valley has happened over the last couple of you know years for sure. Uh, what's happened is they, the smugglers are just looking for a weaker link to go through. And so they could see that there was, you know, just, you know, again, historically, there just hasn't been nearly the amount of, you know, empl- you know uh, amount of workers in that mm-hmm. area to kind of, you know, from the border patrol to kind of deal with it. And so they just kind of made this, you know, the, the smugglers have figured out, look, if we just overwhelm those areas, you know, mm-hmm. and again, you think in Venezuelans and Cubans, they want to be caught. So it's not like they want to be hiding anyhow. They just want to get yes. there and get mm-hmm. their asylum process starting. And so it's just a different environment. And so, you know, and, and what he told me, he was worried, like, as they're, they're moving resources to kind of deal with the surge, they have to kind of watch behind them to figure out if the smugglers will now try to, like, you know, now direct people towards the places where that they've moved resources from. So it's just, right. it's just a look, the border's always a dynamic changing place and routes sure. change, you know. Mm-hmm. But this is one that's like really become very significant. And it's like it'll be worth watching as we kind of go forward. It's, you know, look, there's all kinds of politics, obviously, on the border stuff. But this is one I think where like understanding the nuances of what the border looks like is really mm-hmm. important as policymakers go forward and not just like, oh, like this thing, like this knee jerk reaction that you'll get on Fox News that, look, all these of Mexicans course. are coming across to do right. whatever, blah, blah, blah. No, no. It's like. What do you do when the conversation is, you know, freedom loving people escaping socialism are at the door? It's like, what do we do with that? You know, well, and once again, the increased militarization of the border means that the only uh, entities with the uh, you know muscle 
and the heft to get people across the border end up being these cartels and the human, you know, smugglers who, human traffickers uh, who have the resources to do it. And, you know, and this, it, I mean, it's not a new thing, like you say, that they're the ones who will move people. Uh, but after 9-11, a lot of the employers in Texas will tell you uh, that that border was essentially shut down. Um, and it was so much more difficult for people to come in and out uh, th from Mexico into the United States and go back because that's what people used to do for seasonal yes. work. They would come in and they would go back. They'd come in and they go back. And Texas for so long, part of the quote unquote Texas miracle was that we have what you would call an elastic workforce. You have the, the number of people that you need at the moment. And then when you don't need them, they go back. Right. And so you don't have to offer all these extra government services. You don't have to do all these things for these people if they can come in and out. But now it's so secure that the only people who can come through are the cartels and the human smugglers, the human traffickers. Uh, and so these people are relying on that. Um, and it's I mean, it's really just gross. I mean, I remember stories going back 15, 20 years about a lot of this stuff where the same person would pay the same human trafficker. Three times to make you know the same amount three times to make the same trip because a person would come into the United States they'd pay them the equivalent of six thousand dollars something like that to the trafficker they'd get here and they'd get caught and sent back and they'd just do it again uh. now they're twelve thousand in now they're you know now they're around twenty thousand in and their families are trying to help them get in and everything like that it's, it makes no sense and of course like you said an asylum claim is legal immigration. Right. This is not illegal immigration. It's legal immigration to come in here and say, I'm coming from one of these war torn places or one of these places that's economically collapsing and I'm just trying to get a better life. Some of those folks might as well just tear down the Statue of Liberty if they don't support that. So go ahead. No, and, and so you know, pe people can they pull up the story. It's both at Houston Chronicle and ExpressNews.com. You know, it's like you know, it's like there's a lot more numbers and details of what the what the you know the federal government's doing to kind of the shift, and a lot more of the demographics of folks who are coming across. So just pay attention to that. I think this is going to be a lot different conversation. You know, over the next couple of years, and even going into the next presidential cycle, when again, it's a, it's a very different story when it's you know people coming from Venezuela and Cuba. Um, it'll be. It'll be very different, but I guarantee you a lot of the comments under your story will say, what is it about illegal you don't understand? <laughs> yeah. um, did, you, did you see um, that there are new accusations of defunding the police in Texas? But what we've talked about before, Jeremy, is that this is one of the hits for Republicans. Like, yep. You play the hits, right? Like when I was a disc jockey, but they, don't, they don't call them top 40 stations anymore, do they, Maya? Is that is it a hot hit station? Is that what they say now? You're in radio. You know what, you know what they do. Sure. So you've got what, what what you would call Jeremy back in the day, you'd call it a top 40 station. You'd call it a, a hot hit station. The rotation of songs on one of those on one of those now is so tight that you can listen for one hour and hear the same song within the hour. Yep. Right. It was, it, it's I mean, and this is what Republicans are doing in their campaigns. Some of the hits for their campaigns include defunding the police. I mean, this worked in 2020 big time. Right. I mean, when there were accusations that Democrats wanted to do that and the Democrats, I mean, look, They'll, they'll want to complain that it's not fair because they'll say, well, we don't want to defund the police. There are a few people in the Democratic Party who actually agree with that. And we've seen we know who those folks are. Um, but broadly, I mean, as far as legislators, people in office and local governments, um, they don't want to do that. And you don't see them doing it. But not only was it something that was you know pushed during the campaigns, but then during the legislative session in 2021, last year, it was also pushed as legislation. Right. So now people can complain to the state about their local government, quote unquote, defunding police. So in Harris County, this has happened where some uh, Republican constables are upset with the Harris County judge and commissioner's court saying that they're defunding the police. Now, I'm one of the people who argues that we shouldn't even have constables anymore in Texas. I think it's a big redundancy. I think maybe you could make some exceptions in smaller counties where they might need to have more officers out in different places because of geographic um, you know, issues that come up with some of these giant counties that only have a few people. You want some more people to kind of be able to run around and make sure that people aren't breaking the law. But in a place like Harris County, they have a pretty robust law enforcement uh, presence. You know, for the HPD, Harris County Sheriff's Office, it's probably good enough. But everyone has a fiefdom in politics. Yes, and the constables, absolutely. the constables in the big counties around here have their little fiefdoms. Two Republican constables complain to the state that their budgets are being cut by Harris County Commissioner's Court. Now, the county judge, Lena Hidalgo, who I guess is still sort of a rising star in 
the Democratic Party in Texas. Uh, she was asked about this at a press conference. Uh, Greg Grugan is a reporter at Fox 26 uh, Television there in, in H-Town. And he asked about State Senator John Whitmire's comments. Uh, Whitmire is a Democrat and the chairman of the Senate Criminal Justice Committee. Whitmire is also arguing that Harris County is defunding the police. So when Grugan asked about Whitmire's comments, Hidalgo didn't like that. For a reporter to echo the word defunding when we have just stood here and shown that 65% of our budget goes to law enforcement and that we have increased the budget more than ever before. She said that Whitmire, who is running for mayor, is just pandering on this issue. There are people willing to pander, and it's up to the media and it's up to intellectually honest people to not allow that pandering because it does take away from our frontline deputies' confidence and from our frontline deputies' belief in the system when you lie and tell them that they're being defunded when the truth is they got a salary increase. The prosecutors are the highest paid ever. We have increased the funding for every single law enforcement agency. One argument that you would think would resonate with conservatives is this, that, that you cannot think of a government agency at the local, state, or federal uh, level that wants less funding, right? It, 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 take out which agency it is, right, Jeremy? They all want more money. Every year, they all want more resources, and some of it's justified, some of it's not. You can argue about each one of those, um, but in this instance, police agencies around Texas and other places have basically become, at the national level, like the military. They always need more funding, and they'll say, "Well, look, you're not safe if you don't give us more funding." Sometimes they're right, sometimes they're wrong, and you know, policymakers have to come to these uh, decisions and and figure it out. But th there was a, a, an editorial in the Houston Chronicle uh, that had this headline, Harris County defunding the police, question mark. Apparently, the Texas comptroller can't add. All right. Now, now the comptroller was asked about this by those constables. There was a complaint made with the state. And so the, the comptroller, for those of you who don't know, is sort of the uh, elected accountant for the state. And with Glenn Hager, who's been the comptroller now, since what, since uh, 2014, when he was elected. Um, he's really tried to stay away from this, these red meat issues, Jeremy. In the, the time he's been in office, he's tried to just be the accountant. You think of the accountant as being sort of a boring number cruncher, might wear the little visor and sit there at a <laughs> at one of those big adding machines figuring out, you know, how much, how, how much is coming in and taxes and stuff like that. That's the image that Hager kind of wants. He's not trying to do the red meat stuff. But he can't avoid it when the legislature continues to pass statutes or laws that allow for people to make these complaints like this and then ask him to be the guy to make the determination about whether they were cutting police funding. Hager was asked about this uh, in front of what I would say was maybe not the friendliest uh, – uh, maybe not the friendliest crowd ever. It was at the Texas Association of Counties that a county commissioner from – it's interesting – county commissioner from El Paso got up and asked a question while Hager was making a presentation to the group. Uh, Commissioner David Stout asked this. He said, how did you come to the conclusion that Harris County has cut funding for police when the numbers that they're spending are so high? And in fact, in some cases, they're going up. We, we, we use these terms circumstantial evidence. When enough of the totality comes in, it shows a picture. That was one of the points we made. A second one was dollars that we disagree, and we're going to find out, and the truth is going to come, the truth will, will shed light, and I think that's important. I haven't spoken on this issue otherwise. We sent a letter. I've not done one interview. I've not done re one request. Why? Because I want the process to work. It's a little hard to hear there. He's talking in a room where there was some echo, but he said he used the term circumstantial evidence. He also said that he just wants the process to work. Um, it, even in the way that Hager is handling this, Jeremy, he's still trying to do it in a low-key way. He's, do, he's just, here's just the letter. We sent the letter. In fact, there wasn't even a press release from his office about it, I don't think. The Chronicle uh, got a copy of the letter and reported it out. Um, and then, of course, you have Hidalgo saying that they're, you know, he's wrong and, and all these people who say that they're, uh, you know, that they're, they're, cutting the police, that they're, that they're wrong. There's no defunding of the police going on in Houston. Um, does this speak to uh, a real race for Harris County judge or not? I get this question all the time. The people in Houston want to know, um, is Hidalgo vulnerable? I'm, I've, I've been privy to some polling that's not the Mark Jones polling at Rice University. 
Uh, I've seen some polling that suggests that she might be vulnerable. Who knows? I mean, I do think that Harris County continues to trend more and more Democratic. I think to one of the points you've made in some of our uh, statewide coverage, you know, the the fact is Abbott and Patrick, they can't expect to do that great in Houston. Um, I don't think it's quite where Dallas County is as far as just being solidly Democratic. I mean, you do still have some you know, some county officials who are Republicans. Uh, but the fact is, it's it's trending that way. And so, look, I think Republicans would love to be able to take out somebody like Hidalgo because maybe they perceive her as some threat down the road if she's going to run for U.S. Senate one day or for governor someday. But I also think it just speaks more more largely to the politics right now of Houston and Harris County, which in a lot of ways is a microcosm of Texas and of the nation. Yeah. And the top of the ticket really matters for that kind of a race, right? You know, it's like how Abbott and, you know, Beto O'Rourke do will do a lot to determine what happens further down the ticket. You know, a lot of people, you know, Beto brings out a huge Democratic turnout, you know, Lena Hildago's, you know, in for another term. But, uh, you know, but if Abbott somehow can kind of chip away at that in Harris County, if he were able to do any bit you know, better in Harris County did he did in 2014. Remember, he got smoked in Harris County. You know, he got beat bad, uh, mm-hmm. as did all the statewide. And what, that's what throws me off about this whole, uh, the comptroller, you know, kind of getting into this. It's almost as if he's asking for trouble from Harris County, like, you know, raising his hands saying, oh, by the way, can I get under 40% of the vote in Harris County too? Like, you know, Ken Paxton and Dan Patrick. It just seems mm-hmm. like he's playing with fire by diving into this issue that, is very complicated. You know, as you know, mm-hmm. anybody who's ever covered county government or paid attention to county government knows that the world of sheriff's departments and law enforcement, you know, holding, you know, like going to the public to say, hey, they're mm-hmm. messing with our budget because they're not getting a raise or they're not getting additional money. You know, mm-hmm. that gets pretty complicated in itself. But in Texas, that added level, like you hit on, there's a lot of sheriffs who just don't get along with the constables. You know, it's right. like there's a lot of tension there and a lot of different counties in Texas who would love to for them to just go away. And so when you're defending the constables, you might be picking a fight with some sheriff's offices <laughs> in some pretty notable places. So it's just like it's just a very delicate area. And if I were the comptroller of the state of Texas, I would tread very carefully into all of that because none yeah. of it sounds like a win <laughs> if you get in the right. wrong spot. Yeah, and, and that's part of what I'm saying is I think he is trying to tread lightly by just sending the letter, not putting out a press release or trumpeting this thing because, you know, Hager has really tried to, as one of the one of the uh, only, I would say one of the only statewide uh, elected office holders who doesn't really go for this red meat stuff all the time. He's not like Abbott. He's not like Patrick. He is not like Paxton. Um, but he just can't avoid it if the legislature is going to continue to make him the guy who has to kind of call the balls and strikes on these issues. And so then you heard his answer there. He says, well, look, you know, we're, we're just going through the process. The letter that I sent is just part of the process. It's not the ultimate determination of anything. You know, others will make that determination. I'm just doing what I was asked to do, which is kind of run the numbers on, any, on, on these things. I was remember, I, I was thinking about an event that Hager did um, shortly after he was uh, elected. And I asked him about the different property tax uh, issues that were being uh, debated at the Capitol and some of the proposals from Lieutenant Governor Patrick uh, and uh, Senator Paul Betancourt, who, of course, is the tax point man in the Senate for for Patrick. Um, and, and of course, all of the all everyone I'm talking about is either a state senator or a former state senator. So they've all been colleagues or, you know, in the same room for some of these discussions. And when I brought up property taxes with Hager, the beginning of his answer was to say, well, you know what? At the comptroller's office, you know, you know how how many dollars we process and deal with on property taxes? Zero. So he he wanted to say that to then kind of not have an opinion about what I was talking. He just didn't even want to get into it, right? And he's been trying to do that for all the time he's been in office. And I think it's kind of a recognition. And if you think about it as some of these offices being kind of placeholders or stepping stones to other offices down the line, Hager, somebody you could probably think of one day as a Republican candidate for lieutenant governor or maybe for governor, right? It's happened before, right, that people move you know, from these offices up to higher office. And if you are somebody who is witnessing a changing Texas all around you, you would want to kind of keep your powder dry about a lot of these red meat, hot button issues. Here's a hot button issue, a hot button issue that'll mellow you out. Who would you say is the number one advocate for legal pot in Texas, Jeremy? 
Yeah, you're just walking right into it. Obviously, it's, it's obviously Willie it, Nelson. <laughs> it is Willie Nelson, right? Oh Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. I can't wait to look in the mirror because I get better looking each day. Now, I know Jeremy would have wanted me to play a pot song, but that would be cliche. What's yeah. the one that he does that's, uh, is it, it's all going to pot? Yeah, it's all going to pot. You the one that. he does with Snoop Dogg is absolutely gold. It's, you got to go listen that out to that. Check my Twitter feed. I, did, I, put, I put that out this morning. He's, they say something about how my love's going to last as long as my high does or something like that. Uh, and it's, <laughs> it's Snoop Dogg. It, they're doing the guitar with, uh, with Willie Nelson. Um, you see this a few years ago where he was interviewed by Chelsea Handler, the comedian. Uh, her, her comedy tour uh, right now, by the way, is called Vaccinated and Horny. Who, who can't relate to that? She and Willie got into – well, it's, you know, it's a, it's a pandemic thing. Uh, she and Willie got into it about edibles. I ate too many cookies one time, and I thought I was dying. And I could feel the flesh falling off the bones. Yeah, yeah, because you get every hour, you get higher, yeah. and then you think, it's not hitting me, it's not hitting me, and then you double down, and sure. then you're, it's like a bath. <laughs> and has there ever been a pot you've smoked that you didn't like? I've said this before, pot's like sex, some's better than others, but it's all good. Again, Texas politics needs a parental advisory these days. Um, he, he was saying that pot is like sex, that it's all good, is basically what he's saying. Um, so he's been sort of the spokesman on some of this stuff, Jeremy. I get the question all the time. Why do we not have legal pot in Texas when most Texans agree with having it, right? I mean, if you polled people, what do you th what are the numbers? It's something like 70% support. People would say that marijuana should be legal, right? It's something like yeah. that. Yeah. In almost every poll, people will ask why they don't just let Texans vote on it. Why, you know, why can't we just have a vote? Well, this is more complicated than that. Um, one, I would say you do get to vote on it. Because we live, I mean, y'all really want to know the answer? You live in a representative republic, right? You don't get a direct vote on this stuff, right? Now, what does a representative republic mean, Scott? Well, it means you get to pick the people who get to make the decision, right? So if this is something you're passionate about, pick people for office who say that they're in favor of legal pot. And that's the same across issues. Whatever it is that you want to see happen, then you pick the people who agree with you. Right. If you and here's the here's the deal. Here's the way it works. Unlike a monarchy where the power flows from the king down to the people, it goes the other way. It goes from the people up to the folks that we put in office. And it's not just for the people who voted either. It's for all people. Right. So if you don't vote, I'm, I'm getting to a point here, I promise. If you don't vote, you're letting other people choose who your power will be transferred to. Right, not voting is a choice too. I had to explain this to my daughter when she was not happy with either Biden or Trump last time around, and um, as she certainly wasn't happy. Like I think I've mentioned, if I brought up Trump, she would make a face. So you can just not vote; that's fine, or you can just go a different way, right? But you're leaving it up to other people who your power is going to be transferred to. That's how it works in a representative democracy. Now, in the race for agriculture commissioner, this has been front and center, and here's why I get, I'm getting into this, Jeremy. Because I think that, like you said, we have a, sh a changing state on some of these issues. Republicans feel like they maybe need to take a little bit different approach. Susan Hayes is the Democratic nominee for agriculture commissioner. And she was on Spectrum News here in Austin talking about what she would like to see in the way of marijuana reform. I'd like to see a thoughtful, comprehensive reform of our medical cannabis program, that it is a full program that it can use for any condition. And we do not have legislatures telling doctors how to practice medicine. And if you, on my website, I have a detailed proposal. That website is hayesforag.com, H-A-Y-S, the number four, A-G.com. And I would also like us to see us use this to beef up criminal justice reform. Mm. Our forensic crime labs are grossly underfunded. And it's sort of wild to me to watch Governor Abbott blow billions of dollars on his trumped up border charade and not give a few tens of millions of dollars to our forensic crime labs so that they can adequately 
find really dangerous drugs, like the real danger to public health and safety in Texas are mystery substances and black market vape pens. You can put anything in a vape pen. But our crime labs don't have the wherewithal to test for that. So she's saying she'd like to have an open, honest debate about marijuana. Now, you might expect that from the and she'll be attacked, of course, as the liberal Democrat who's running against Sid Miller. So let me read this to you. This is from an op ed written by the Republican Agriculture Commissioner Sid Miller. Quote, let's have an honest conversation about cannabis. Miller came out in the last couple of months and said he's in favor of expansion of medical marijuana in Texas. And this is the same agriculture commissioner. Do you remember, Jeremy, when the when the um, when the legislature gave the go ahead uh, for legal hemp in Texas? That what Miller said at the time was now all of you potheads out there. You don't need to get ahead of yourselves and think that, oh, we're, you know, we're taking steps toward more expansion of marijuana in Texas. But now he's saying, and this is in the midst of a campaign where his opponent on the Democratic side is pushing for more access to marijuana and complete reform of marijuana laws in the state. Now you have the ag commissioner saying something different. Now he's saying, actually, when it comes to compassionate use, when it comes to, you know, giving people some uh, relief from some of the things that they may suffer with, that, hey, we could at least take a step in that direction. Of course, the governor had said previously that when the, um, you know, the CBD oil uh, was approved for, for use in Texas for some extreme conditions, the governor had said, look, this is not a slippery slope toward legalization of marijuana. But I do think the tides are starting to turn, not just on this issue, but others, Jeremy. But when it comes to marijuana, um, you have now two people running for ag commissioner in Texas who both have now have the position that we should at least expand. Now, obviously, the Democrat would like to go further. But both the Republican and Democrat are saying, actually, you know what? Let's talk about this a little bit more. I find that fascinating. Yeah, after there's a lot of Republican states that have already gone to a much more you know, robust, you know, medical marijuana system than we have by far. You know, it's like there's so many conditions that, you know, Texas just is not allowing to be treated. But, you know, and, and remember, you know, you know Beto O'Rourke is really pushing this, you know, medical marijuana, you know, not just that, but like all legalization of marijuana. And but like I but the real key to this whole discussion that I've seen in other states, at least, has been, you know, when you get to the point of expunging records, you know, past criminal you know, offenses for, you know, marijuana. That is a huge issue. He's like, this isn't just about, like you mentioned, this isn't just about like, you know, kids who want to smoke pot here. Like this becomes a real criminal justice issue. And guess what? You know, uh, you know, white folks and, you know, you know, black and brown communities all use marijuana at almost the same exact clip. But guess what? They're not prosecuted in the same way. I know that's a shock that in modern day America, more people who are black are going to jail for mm -hmm. marijuana usage, even though white folks are using it just as much. And right. so that becomes a very powerful message to a lot of people in you know black communities in Texas who are sitting there going, yeah, they did the exact same thing the little white kids are doing mm -hmm. and their kids went to jail. Right. The white kids, you know, got a pat on the back and say, Tommy, don't let me catch you doing it again. You know, it's like and life went on It's like it's a real major change in a much mm -hmm. more serious topic, I think, in some of the black communities. And I think a lot of people understand, you know, when people go on, a, you know, hear this issue, kind of get some momentum going. Watch for that being a, a game changer. You watch like how, you know, other folks realize that hey, this is not just about kids wanting to smoke pot at local university this is like about you know kind of writing something that has gotten really wrong and yeah. the prosecution of people who use the same substance you know yet the criminal justice system just does not treat them the same isn't it interesting that the people and the demographics who tend to vote more seem to suffer fewer consequences from the same behavior right stop letting other people transfer your power for you I'm going to repeat that leading up to November. Uh, are you ready for some audience questions? So this week, I let people know on the show last week and on social media that I'm at great professional risk to myself and you. I would allow others to decide what we might talk about. Because other, usually the editorial decisions are all made right here, right? Maya knows that. You know that. It happens right here in my office. So I allowed people 
to respond to me on social media and ask some questions that we might address. And um, Brendan asks, I thought this was interesting. He says, uh, why have Democrats been silent on prosecuting or holding energy companies in ERCOT criminally liable from the winter storm? Seems like Beto does a lot of saber rattling about making it better, but nothing about those in charge at the time getting actual consequences. My answer, Jeremy, would be that I think some of that uh, kind of discussion is probably coming closer to November. I think that Texas voters in general are really upset when they see what when they see what they perceive as corruption. And you at, you have seen uh, Mike Collier, the lieutenant governor candidate, uh, basically making the case in some of his digital advertising. We'll see if he has you know, money to make the case on television. Uh, but he has talked about the idea that, look, here you have donors to the governor who made off like bandits. Beto actually did a version of that as well. Remember, he did a press conference uh, in Dallas when it was. And here's the thing with the electricity grid, it gets a little complicated. Th things are kind of hard to understand. So you remember when Beto talked about this, his press conference went on forever before he ever got to the accusation he was making. This is when he was talking about Kelsey Warren, uh, you know, making off like a bandit in his estimation, and then turning right around and writing a million dollar check to Greg Abbott. If there's a way for Democrats to tell that story in, th and you know, I'm not here to help them with that. They can figure that out. But if there's a way for them to tell that story in a 30 second ad, I think you'll see more of it. But uh, but otherwise, it may not be something that works. And the other thing I would say about ERCOT and the electricity grid is as we move out of the summer months and at least most Texans kind of perceive that, hey, the grid was fine this time around and maybe it is that they fixed it, uh, then you will see some of those attacks start to wane and certainly lose some of their, uh, you know, lose some of their punch when Democrats try to use it against Republicans. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I think, you know, Beto O'Rourke has come the closest to talking about it. I'll be going to a rally tonight in San Antonio with him, and I expect it to come up again. Like he's he's had some pretty harsh words in San Antonio uh, uh, about Kelsey Warren and the, the people who made out like bandits. He, he brings it up quite a bit. Not to the point where I, I I have to listen real carefully to see if he's talked about it, you know, going after them criminally. But certainly he's, you know, told audiences that we're going to go back after them and get that money back that they took from us. You know, mm -hmm. they made huge profits, you know, off of people. You know, everybody's electric bill has gone up, you know, and, you know, we're paying the price of this for years to come. So he mm -hmm. keeps you know, making the case we're going to go back after that money. He hasn't got to the point, I think, of like, going, OK, those guys should be in jail and mm -hmm. should be going after these folks right so it's like yeah it, it's a little bit harder uh, you know to get to that level uh so but yeah we'll we'll keep an ear out for it once it turns into something more steph in dallas wants to know what we think about the fact that attorney general ken paxton thinks anyone should be able that any person in texas should be able to examine ballots right after an election there was a story about that this week and what it was jeremy was is one of these uh, attorney ag opinions attorney general opinions where paxton basically says that yeah if people are worried about voter fraud then they should be able to just go look at the ballots and check them it reminds me of what happened in arizona where they had this you know huge audit of the ballots there after the trump supporters were saying that arizona was stolen and you remember how crazy and in fact racist the conspiracy theorists were at one point, they were alleging that the ballot paper had bamboo in it because it would have something to do with the paper coming from China. So you go, wait, wait a minute, what, what are y'all even talking about? That, But that's how crazy it gets. Now, a couple things about it. One, it's just an AG's opinion. And that doesn't mean that news outlets shouldn't cover it, but I think people get that kind of twisted. They think that that means that the AG is somehow making a ruling or the AG is somehow you know ordering that something happened. He can't do that. You know, He has to go to court. I mean, he's an, he's an attorney. He has to go to court to make his argument for something to happen. Now, he represents the state of Texas, and that's not without some heft. But I do think it speaks to the fact that Paxton, unlike Governor Abbott, and even to some degree, unlike Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, because in that uh, update on the bus tour, that email that I saw earlier about Patrick's bus tour, it's the first email from Patrick's campaign I've seen in a while that doesn't include the fact that he was endorsed by Trump right at the very top. He's been doing that all along. Now, I don't know if he wants to put himself put himself at some distance from Trump, but Abbott certainly doesn't talk about his Trump endorsement anymore. Uh, but Paxton is right there in the thick of it with these election deniers who are all in the thrall of Donald Trump.
Yeah, exactly. Paxton's in a totally different world and stuff. He, he's going up to Bedminster for you know a fundraiser with Trump next week, and so oh, yeah. you can see this guy's like completely riding shotgun with him, and he's completely channeling the my pillow guy at this point. You know, it's like it just feels <laughs> like you know this, yeah. these opinions are exactly what Mike Lindell, <laughs> the my pillow guy, would want to see written and sent to these guys. Going, yeah. let us see all the ballots of how everybody voted. You know, it's like which like, again you sit there going. Whose ballots are we talking about? Who's voting absentee? It's Republicans right. over the age of 65. You know, you're predominantly going after your own voters. You know, what is this? I'm not even sure what they're asking for at this point. They're going to make yeah. it to the point where nobody ever wants to vote for, you know, vote absentee, absentee ballot or mail ballot, whatever you want to call yeah. it. And, and maybe that's what the goal is, to make sure that we no longer have this super convenient way for right. people who are older uh, or who are homebound, you know, so now they have to somehow figure out how to get to a polling place. Well, if people think you're stretching at all with that, remember earlier in the year, I attended an event with, and the, the key speakers were Mike Lindell, the My Pillow guy, and Ken Paxton, Attorney General of Texas. And after the event, Jeremy, they had this dinner in, in a ballroom in Houston. And after the event, of course, I went to the hotel bar because, again, of course I did. And off in a dark corner, you had Ken Paxton and Mike Lindell late into the night after midnight, just kind of hanging out thick as thieves. This is, uh, you know, they're buddies. And so, yes, I, I wish I was making that up, but I'm not. Um, I think and we've got lots of other questions here. I think that's enough show. You can continue to send your questions and I might do this like once a month, something like that. So I, again, it's a great professional risk to all of us. You know, Maya's just getting her career started. I can't tank this whole show because I allow you to, to, to to determine what we talk about. If this is your favorite show, you know it is, then that means you're already subscribed on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, whatever. What you should do now is tell three friends to also do that. And if they tell three friends and they tell three friends and they tell three friends, it's a Ponzi scheme, a pyramid scheme to keep us number one. You should also subscribe at quorumreport.com and houstonchronicle.com and we'll see you next time.